continuing our series in 1 John, verse by verse, 1 John 2, verse 7. Brethren, I write no new commandment to you, but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. Verse 8. Again, a new commandment I write to you, which thing is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is in darkness until now. Verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light and there is no cause for stumbling in him. Verse 11, but he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. The big idea of these verses we just read, verses 7 through 11, is to love one another. John is emphasizing loving one another. Verse 7, one more time, brethren, I write no new commandment to you but an old commandment which you have had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word which you have heard from the beginning. This word beginning that is mentioned twice in this verse means at the moment John's readers become Christians. This word beginning is a reference to someone's Christian beginning. This commandment to love one another was told to them from being just beginning Christians. This commandment to love one another wasn't some recent innovation from John. John said the commandment to love one another wasn't a new commandment. It was actually an old commandment. This had been taught earlier in the Old Testament Mosaic Code. Notice Leviticus 19.18. You shall not take vengeance, not bear any grudge against the children of your people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. That should sound familiar. The New Testament uses that same language. Let me set this up. Jesus' enemies wanted to discredit him and wanted to discredit him in public so that public opinion would turn against him. And Matthew chapter 22 describes three different attempts to discredit Jesus through presenting him three different questions. The text we are about to read describes the third question. And that question was, which is the greatest commandment in the Mosaic Law? Which is the greatest commandment in the Mosaic Law? That question came from a strict religious sect of Jewish men known as the Pharisees. Matthew 22 starting at verse 35. Then one of them, meaning one of these Pharisees, a lawyer asked him a question, testing him and saying, the Pharisees sent to Jesus a member of their group that was an attorney. And his assignment was to see if he could trick Jesus, deceive Jesus into condemning himself. That's something criminal attorneys still do in the courtroom to the defendant. I understand to be cross-examined on the witness stand can be a horrific experience. This attorney was an expert in the Mosaic Law. He was probably considered one of the foremost experts in ancient Judaism. So he was sent to Jesus to present to him a legal question. Remember, this is all designed to be a trap. This was that question. Verse 36, teacher, 
or rabbi? Which is the great commandment in the law? The law meaning the Mosaic law. God gave Moses on Mount Sinai the law that would govern his people, um, Israel. This was a carefully worded question. That's because in ancient Judaism, no one was more revered than Moses. Moses was considered the man. One rabbi said, quote, God calls Moses faithful in all his house and thereby ranks him, meaning ranks Moses, higher than the ministering angels themselves. According to this rabbi, Moses was in a classification above the angels. Moses was the greatest one. Moses was it. Matthew 23 verse 2 states that the scribes and Pharisees sat in Moses' seat because that was the seat of ultimate authority. One reason the Pharisees found Jesus unacceptable was because those religious men felt that Jesus' teaching, meaning what Jesus taught, contradicted Moses' teaching. These men felt that what Jesus was teaching was a contradiction to what Moses had taught. It wasn't, but that was their impression. This was all a setup. This question was worded so that Jesus might condemn himself. This question was an attempt to deceive Jesus into submitting an answer that could be construed to mean Jesus was teaching something that superseded Moses' teaching. If this attorney could succeed in tempting Jesus to contradict something Moses had taught, then those Pharisees could accuse Jesus of being a religious heretic. The Jewish people themselves would see that and would then turn against Jesus if he said something against Moses. This attorney wanted to catch Jesus in a response that might question Moses or contradict Moses or misrepresent Moses, but Jesus was too smart to fall into that trap. Verse 37, Jesus said to him, this attorney, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is what has happened. Jesus just quoted Moses. And he not only quoted Moses, he quoted from probably the most famous statement Moses ever made. He quoted from an Old Testament passage called the Shema. Religious Jewish people are still required to recite the Shema twice each day, once in the morning and once in the evening. This verse uh, that Jesus quoted is part of that Shema. The Shema is found in Deuteronomy. Notice Deuteronomy 6, verse 5. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your strength. Understand what Jesus just did. In quoting Moses, Jesus demonstrated solidarity with Moses. In quoting from Deuteronomy, which was one of the five books Moses authored, we call those books the Pentateuch or the Torah. In quoting Moses from Deuteronomy, Jesus essentially said he agreed with Moses. And as a result, this deceitful attorney couldn't do anything. He had nothing to say. He had nothing to pin on Jesus. Verse 38, this, meaning this statement from the Shema, Jesus quoted, is the first and great commandment. Jesus said the number one thing above all else 
is to love God. And we are to love God with our entire being, our whole person. Unfortunately, we don't have time to expand on that. We did that in an earlier message some months ago. So the first commandment is to love God. And the second commandment is to love people. Verse 39. And the second, meaning the second great commandment, is like it. Meaning the second great commandment is similar to the first great commandment. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. This second great commandment is a logical extension of the first great commandment. If we love God with all that we are, then we're going to love people as we do ourselves. Remember, Jesus was addressing a member of the Pharisees. And those Pharisees were hypocritical. Those Pharisees didn't actually love people. Those hypocritical men pretended to love people. It was a pretense. And then those men turned around and imposed impossible legalistic burdens on them, overcharged them, stole from them, used and abused them, made merchandise of them, and were cruel to them. The Pharisees loved themselves, not others. And notice that our love for, our, for oneself, or pardon me, notice that our love for one another is to be measured according to our love for ourselves. Our love for one another is to be measured according to our love for ourselves. Jesus said, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, meaning as you love yourself. That means we are to love our neighbor as we would love ourselves. The normal person provides for his own needs. If he needs nutrition, then he feeds himself. If he needs protection from the element, then he clothes himself. If he's feeling sick, then he purchases some over-the-counter medication, or if it is more severe, then he schedules a doctor's appointment. That is because at the core, we are consumed with caring and providing for ourselves. And that is a normal thing, that is a good thing, an expected thing, if, if it isn't to the exclusion of others. Don't misunderstand this line from Jesus. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. Jesus wasn't, wasn't encouraging more self-love. He assumes we already love ourselves. Ephesians 5.29, for no one, meaning no normal person, ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it. Nourishes and cherishes in that last phrase means he feeds and cares for his own body. The problem is, we tend to love ourselves too much. I see this often. People tend to love themselves too much to the point where some people are self-absorbed. I still remember the first time I had to address a disgruntled church member. We just started our first congregation about six months into that project. I was told that a particular older woman was upset. I'm probably just, just turning 25 at that time. And this is like the first thing that I've had to address, someone being upset. So I went to see this woman. I sat down and she told me, because I said, what is the problem? She told me that on a recent Sunday, she had come to the service and someone was actually sitting 
in her seat. (laughs) And she didn't appreciate that. She was upset. And she made this self-incriminating statement. She said, and she was flustered, her face was red. She said, "I I was just thinking about myself. And I said, yes, that's true. And that is your problem. I said, have you noticed none of the chairs have names on them? That's because we don't have assigned seating. All the seating is on a first-come, first-served basis. So if it is so important that you sit in that particular chair, then come earlier and that chair should be available to sit in. And if for some reason it isn't available, then there are other good and available seats. Question, do you think that disgruntled woman listened to me? No. After that conversation, she never returned to the church. She's the reason, she's the reason someone said to me, what do you appreciate the most about being a pastor? I said, people. And what do you appreciate the least about being a pastor? I said, people. But although people are frustrating, extremely frustrating at times, as part of this congregation, we must remember we're in the people business. This isn't a theological business as much as it is a people business. And the moment people cease to matter to us, we cease to be a biblically functioning community. And we have forfeited one of the reasons we exist. I listen to sermons from different men all the time. Uh, And recently I came across, it was recommended to me, a Lutheran pastor that was most unusual. I'm sure he was, this was unusual for his own denomination. Uh, He had a previous career in law enforcement. He had been a homicide detective um, before attending and graduating from seminary. uh, And then he entered the pastorate. And as a pastor, he did something I am also accustomed to doing. But the extent to which he does it literally puts me to shame. He visits people. I visit people. He visits people in his congregation. I visit people in our congregation. He visits people outside his congregation. Evangelistic visits, presenting the gospel. I do the same. In a recent 12-month period, he made 1,003 visits. 1,003 visits. He admitted that some visits can last three, four hours. 1,003 visits averages out to more than 19 visits per week and more than two and a half visits each day. That's amazing. On the surface, to me, that seems excessive as some of his other pastoral responsibilities must suffer if he's devoted that much time to visiting. But the point is, I admire him. I congratulate him because it is apparent People matter to him, and people should matter to us. To my knowledge, there is no other pastor in this entire valley that visits in homes other than me. They don't do it. I've been called a dinosaur. I've been told I'm old school. I said, good. I'm not going to stop. I can't get to know people unless I visit with them, and I don't have opportunities to present them the gospel unless I visit with them. So I admire this man. Verse 40, on these two commandments, meaning the first and second great commandment, hang all the law and the prophets. 
These Greek commandments are, don't miss this, first, love God, and second, love people. Love God, love people. And according to this verse, those two commandments sum up the entire Mosaic Code and the Old Testament prophets. The Ten Commandments are part of the Mosaic Law. Those commandments are found in Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, and then those commandments are repeated in Deuteronomy 5, verses 4 through 21. These are the Ten Commandments. This should sound familiar. One, worship no other gods. Two, make no idols. Three, don't misuse God's name. Four, honor God's special day. That's the Sabbath. And I might add, the Sabbath is Saturday. The Sabbath has never been changed to Sunday. It is Saturday. Five, honor our parents. Six, don't murder. Seven, don't commit adultery. Eight, don't steal. Nine, don't lie. Ten, don't covet. Notice something interesting. Those Ten Commandments can be divided according to the greatest commandments Jesus just mentioned. The first four commandments fit into the first great commandment to love God because all four commandments relate to God. Notice, one, worship no other gods, just Yahweh, the one God. Two, make no idols because idols are representations of false gods. Three, don't misuse God's name. Four, honor God's special day. All four commandments relate to God and fit into the great commandment to love God. And then the second six commandments fit into the second great commandment to love people because all six commandments relate to people. Number five, honor our parents. And contrary to some teenagers thinking, parents are actually people. Number six, don't murder. We cannot murder a non-person. Seven, don't commit adultery. An affair happens between people. Number eight, don't steal from people. Number nine, don't lie to another person. Don't, number 10, don't covet other people's stuff. So these six commandments relate to the second great commandment to love people. That means the basic requirements of both Judaism and Christianity are summed up in the same dual command, to love God and to love people. Actually, Christianity isn't that complicated. Christianity can be defined as Jesus Christ coming into an available human body and then being permitted to act like himself. That's the essence of Christianity. And then, if we do that, invite Jesus to come inside us and permit him to be himself, if we do that, then Jesus, in and through us, will enable us to love God and love people. It's that simple. Let's revisit 1 John. 1 John. Notice something. On the surface, verses 7 and 8, we just read, seem to contradict one another. Notice in verse 7, John said to his audience, I write no new commandment to you. And then in verse 8, John said, a new commandment I write to you. So on the surface, that's confusing. Which is it, John? No new commandment or a new commandment? Let me explain that. 
John was using what on the surface seems to be a contradiction to describe how the old commandment to love one another is not a new commandment, but in another sense, it is a new commandment. John is describing how the old commandment to love one another is not a new commandment, but in another sense, it is a new commandment. I might interject a footnote. Um, the Greek word translated as new in these verses is kainos. And kainos means new, not necessarily newer in chronological time or age, but kainos means newer in quality. It is a better quality of something. As an example of that, Hopi just purchased a kainos new car. It wasn't a 2022 model. We don't purchase cars off the dealer's lot. We permit someone else to purchase them, and they can pay for that depreciation, and then we can buy it when they're tired of it. That's what we do. But it was still a new, kainos new car. She was driving a 2010 Honda Cross Tour. It had about 190,000 miles. And we were concerned about the transmission going out because it was manifesting some beginning symptoms of that. And that has happened to us before. We've lost transmissions. Transmissions are expensive to replace. So she decided it's time to trade it in. Um, our youngest son, Brian, found this screaming deal. And it was on a 2014 Lexus hybrid. She wanted a hybrid because we're tired of the gas prices. Um, and we wanted better mileage, and she gets phenomenal mileage now. It had just 36,000 miles, and it was immaculate inside and out. I mean, it really seemed like it just came off the showroom, showroom floor. Um, so um, she and Tammy uh, drove to San Diego, traded it in, and purchased the Lexus. Now, the Lexus is newer in chronological age. It's a 2014 model compared to a 2010 model. But more important than that, it is a Kainos new car, meaning it is newer, newer, and better in quality. Hondas are good cars. We've owned five of them. But this Lexus is much superior to the Honda she traded in. That's the essence of this word Kainos. And... Uh, I just thought I would tell you that so that you would understand how nice a husband I am to permit her to do that. Let me demonstrate why this old commandment to love one another is not a new commandment, and at the same time, it is a new commandment. Verse 8 again, John said, a new commandment I write to you, which thing which thing is this commandment to love one another? Which thing is true in him, Jesus, and in you, and who is in us, Jesus? So the difference between the old commandment to love one another and the new commandment to love one another, the difference is Jesus. Jesus is the kainos difference because Jesus modeled this commandment to the fullest and ultimate extent, something no one else could do. Jesus was prophesied in the Old Testament, but Jesus wasn't actually present on this earth until the New Testament. 
Even though the Old Testament saints understood this command to love one another, it was part of the Mosaic Code, still there was no one alive at that time that could model it to the degree that Jesus would do. In the New Testament, we have that same commandment to love one another, but it's a different and kindness newer form of that commandment because we have now a perfect person to model that commandment, and his name is Yeshua, Jesus. One small example of him fulfilling that commandment was during Passion Week where Jesus assumed the role of the lowest household slave and washed the feet of his disciples. And the ultimate example of him doing that was his sacrifice for our sins on the cross. That's how this old commandment is not a new commandment, but it is a new commandment. Because the injection of Jesus causes it to become new. It's a kainos, newer commandment, because it now includes Jesus, and that is a definite upgrade in quality. Notice 1 John 4, 7 and 8. Beloved, let us love one another, for love is of God, and everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. Verse 8, he who does not love does not know God. One more time, he who does not love does not know God. Why? For God is love. Let's uh, go back to 1 John 2, verse 9. He who says he is in the light and hates his brother is deceived, essentially, because he is still in darkness until now. Light and darkness are exact opposites. Light represents God and his associated goodness. Darkness represents Satan and his associated evilness. Light is God and his goodness. Darkness is Satan and his evilness. Light and darkness cannot coexist. If someone announces to us he's part of the light, meaning from his perspective, he's a Christian. That's how he sees himself. But then he hates, despises his spiritual brother. And the reason behind that hatred doesn't matter. He might have been an innocent victim uh, from some form of intense conflict. But that doesn't add justification to his hatred. According to this verse, his hatred means he's self-deceived. He's still in darkness. He's still operating in spiritual darkness. He's not in light, and he doesn't have authentic salvation. I might interject a footnote. If he doesn't have authentic salvation, if he's unsaved, then his brother isn't actually his spiritual brother. Because there's no spiritual connection between them. He is not one of God's spiritual children. So this, quote, brother cannot be his actual brother until he receives Christ. Verse 10. He who loves his brother abides in the light. And there is no cause for stumbling in him. The person that actually loves his spiritual brother is operating in spiritual light. He's validating his relational connection to God. He's a demonstrable Christian. And as such, he doesn't cause others to stumble. The word stumbling throughout the New Testament describes sinning. So John used that word stumbling to illustrate that someone that is committed to loving people as much as he loves God, will not be a stumbling block to someone else. John 13, 35. By this, 
all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. The characteristic that identifies someone as a Christian is a mutual love for one another. But that's sometimes not so true about us. Christians can be some of the most unchristlike, unloving people I have ever met. And I don't understand that. Verse 11, But he who hates his brother is in darkness and walks in darkness and does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. This word hate is a strong word. Hate is defined as intense intense dislike. It means to loathe someone, to detest someone. It is more than being irritated or bugged at someone. It means to literally despise someone. The person that hates someone finds himself still in spiritual darkness. No matter what his profession is, it is said he walks in darkness. So the person that hates people is continuing in darkness. He's never been in the light. And notice that this spiritual darkness has blinded his eyes, so he has no idea where he's going. That describes a non-Christian. Notice the lesson. The ultimate test of our commitment to this command, to love and not hate one another, is in our personal commitment to love the most unlovable. The ultimate test of our commitment to this command to love one another, not hate one another, is in our personal commitment to love the most unlovable person. It's nothing special to love someone that's lovable. Some people are just lovable. Some people we cannot resist loving. Unfortunately, I'm not one of those irresistible persons. You have to work hard to love me. But there are people that are just irresistible to love. The rubber meets the road when we find someone unlovable and difficult and offensive and obnoxious and in some cases even criminal. The rubber meets the road when we meet that person and we still love them. Here are some practical steps on how to love someone that is unlovable. Step one. Find the contributing factors to this person's unlovableness. If possible, find those factors that contribute to this person's unlovableness. Now, don't misunderstand this first step. In 99% of cases where someone is a chronic, unlovable person, the core problem is sin. Sin. Not some psychological disorder, sin. And most often that sin is pride. And pride is behind so much of what is unacceptable to God. But sometimes, in addition to that pride, there are other contributing factors that complicate things. In some cases, someone has been a victim of serious abuse. And I cannot count the number of women I have spoken to even some men that are victims of sexual abuse. In some cases, it could be a genuine personality disorder. It could be a mental illness. It could be clinical depression. 
and understanding the factors that have contributed to someone's unlovableness can sometimes make it easier for us to love them. More often than not, though, we cannot discover those contributing factors until we get to know someone. The problem is that sometimes someone's unlovableness prevents us from getting to know them. Second, find something good in the unlovable person. If possible, find something good in the unlovable person. It's easier to love someone if we don't see them as totally unlovable. If we can just find some, even minor, positive qualities in someone, it can help us disassociate this person from that unlovable label in our mind. Martin Luther King Jr. said, There is some good in the worst of us and some evil in the best of us. When we discover this, we are less prone to hate our enemies. That's true. Find something good in that unlovable person. Third, understand that unlovable people need love most of all. Unlovable people need love most of all. These people need God's love. And we can bring them that love if we love them as God loves them. 1 Peter 4.8 And above all things, have fervent love for one another. According to one commentator, this word fervent means to be stretched, to be strained. That word was used to describe a runner in a race that was moving at maximum speed, straining and stretching himself to the absolute limit in order to reach the finish line first. That means we should exert an all-out effort to love one another. But most people exert no such effort to love the unlovable. 1 John 4.11, Beloved, if God so loved us, and He did, we ought also to love one another. We should be an extension of God's love. God has loved us. We just permit that love from Him to pass through us onto someone else. Four, remember to incorporate the golden rule. That golden rule is found in Matthew 7, verse 12, where Jesus said, Therefore, whatever you want men to do to you, do also to them. For this is the law and the prophets. We are to treat that, quote, unlovable person. We are to treat them as we would want it to be treated ourselves. And the argument is, but this person doesn't deserve that. And my response to that argument is, and neither do we. I might add, it is a given. We should pray for this person. Per Matthew 5, verse 44, we should pray for them on a continuous basis. Number five, refuse to respond in kind to this person's unlovableness. Refuse to respond in kind to this person's unlovableness. Sometimes unlovable people are loud hypercritical, obnoxious, argumentative, and we shouldn't respond to them in that same manner. We cannot permit ourselves to descend to that level of obnoxiousness. Proverbs 15, verse 1, a soft answer, meaning a, a patient, calm response to someone, turns away wrath. 
but a harsh word stirs up anger. A soft or gentle response to someone over a sensitive matter, over a conservative, controversial matter, diffuses that person and deflects that person's anger and prevents the situation from escalating into something more serious. Understand, no one wins a screaming match. No one. I've tried it. No one. Proverbs 15, verse 18. A wrathful man stirs up strife, but he who is slow to anger, meaning the patient person, allays contention. Paraphrased as, a hothead starts fights, and a cool-headed person stops them. That's the essence of that verse. Dale Carnegie, born 1888, died 1955, was a writer and lecturer and the developer of courses in self-improvement, public speaking, and interpersonal skills. Someone said Carnegie excelled at teaching the art of dealing with that old and complicated technology called people. He is best known for his 1936 best-selling book entitled How to Win Friends and Influence People. It is still in print, still popular. I've read it twice. Carnegie operated under the impression that it is important that it's possible to change someone else's behavior through changing our behavior toward them. Don't miss that. Carnegie felt it's possible to change someone else's behavior through changing our behavior toward them. And there's wisdom in that. Dale Carnegie said, you cannot win an argument. His contention was. You cannot win an argument. You can't because if you lose it, you lose it. And if you win it, you still lose it. So refuse to respond in kind to someone's unlovableness. Number six, our final step. Be prepared to practice forgiveness toward this unlovable person. Be prepared to practice forgiveness toward this unlovable someone because chances are if we have some close association to this person chances are at some point in time this unlovable person will offend us slander us lie about us it happens to me all the time and when that happens we should immediately practice forgiveness there are two basic forms of forgiveness we can practice. Positional forgiveness and transactional forgiveness. This is not a sermon on forgiveness per se, uh, but, but I need to touch on this. Positional forgiveness is where someone forgives the offender and then forgets about the offense. Forgiveness in a positional sense is where someone consciously forgives the offender and then forgets about the offense. Now, it probably isn't possible uh, on a conscious level or even subconscious level to completely eradicate or erase that offense from our mind. It, it's probably still there. It probably would be brought out during hypnosis, for example. 
But that's not what we mean. To forget that offense means that if that offense is mentioned, we remember that we forgave the offender. To forgive and forget, to forget that offense means that if someone brings up that offense, if that offense is mentioned, we remember instantly that we forgave the offender. That prevents anger, sustained anger, and bitterness, bitterness from building up inside us. Positional forgiveness is so important. And it doesn't involve anyone other than you and God. Second is transactional forgiveness. Transactional forgiveness is where we forgive someone that asks to be forgiven. Where we forgive someone that actually asks to be forgiven. I might interject this. Most people don't even know how to apologize. I mean this, I'm sorry. That's really inadequate. If you have offended someone, you're made aware of the offense, then you go to that person and you admit to that particular offense. Admit it. And then ask them this question, would you please forgive me? That is very important because what you're doing is putting the ball in their court. They now have to respond to you. You ask them, would you please forgive me? And then they're under pressure. Do I forgive or not forgive? And I might add this, I'm not ready to forgive is bogus. That is not biblical. We are to forgive instantaneously in a positional sense. And transactionally, if the person comes to us. But the moment someone comes to us seeking forgiveness, at that moment, forgiveness is transacted between the offender and the offended. Now, sometimes transactional forgiveness never happens. Often, it never happens. Because the offender refuses to admit to his offense. In his stubbornness and pride, he refuses to humble himself and admit to it. The offender refuses to repent and seek reconciliation with the person he has offended. That's the reason we should practice positional forgiveness. We should do that immediately. Once we've been offended, immediately think positional forgiveness. It's always, always something we should do. Transactional forgiveness, though, can occur when opportunities present themselves for someone to come to us and ask for forgiveness. And we are to immediately forgive them. But often that doesn't happen. There are people who have offended me um, that have never come to me, but I have, in a positional sense, forgiven them. So I'm not angry. There's no bitterness. I'm good. But if they do come to me, if God convicts them, and they do come to me, I will be anxious to forgive them. Uh, some people have the idea that if we humble ourselves to ask for forgiveness, it, it makes us look less than what we are. If someone has humbled himself and is courageous enough to ask me to forgive them, my opinion of them is not lowered, it is elevated. I think more of them after than I did before. Matthew 18, 21 and 22. Then Peter came to him and said, came to Jesus and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Verse 22, Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. 
Nothing characterizes the new nature of Christians as much as forgiveness. This anxiousness to forgive someone. Because nothing so characterizes the nature of God as forgiveness. Simon Peter wanted to know from Jesus himself if there is a limit on forgiving someone. The reason he asked that question was because the traditional Jewish rabbis had assigned a limit on forgiveness. And that limit was three times. Three times. One famous rabbi, Jose ben Hania, said, quote, He who begs for forgiveness from his neighbor must not do so more than three times. If a man com- commits an offense once, then forgive him. If he commits an offense a second time, then forgive him. If he commits an offense a third time, then forgive him. The fourth time, then do not forgive him. So according to the rabbis, we are obligated and responsible to forgive someone just three times. After that, we don't have to forgive them. So Peter suggested a limit of more than twice that of rabbinical tradition. He thought he was being hyper-gracious and super-merciful and suggested forgiving someone seven times. He probably thought that would impress Jesus. According to verse 22, though, Jesus wasn't thinking about setting a limit on forgiveness. He said we should forgive up to 70 times 7. 70 times 7 is 490 times. Now notice... Jesus did not mean, in an actual literal sense, forgiving someone 490 times. He just took the number Peter gave him, multiplied it times itself, and then multiplied that number times 10. And in doing that, creating a number that was past realistic counting. No one creates a forgiveness scorecard that adds up to 490. This doesn't happen, and Jesus didn't expect it to happen. The point is we are to forgive someone of the 100th offense, or we are to forgive someone of the 1,000th offense. It doesn't matter. The number of times we have been offended and required to forgive doesn't matter because forgiveness is to be limitless. Most people from the Northwest probably recognize the name the Green River Killer. His actual name is Gary Ridgway. At the time of his arrest, he was this nation's most prolific serial murderer. Unfortunately, he is now number two. There is now a worse offender than him. Ridgway was initially convicted of 48 separate murders, although he admitted to murdering more than 71 women. The actual count was probably higher, as he told detectives he had murdered such a large number of women that he lost track and he couldn't remember names or faces. He earned the name the Green River Killer because his first five victims were found in the Green River in Washington State. He was sentenced to 48 consecutive life sentences without the chance of parole. On a personal basis, I wish He could have been executed, as that is a biblical concept in certain cases. But the death penalty was taken off the table as part of a plea deal so that he would confess to the names of his victims, meaning the ones he remembered, and he would help the police find the locations of their bodies. 
Most of Ridgeway's victims were prostitutes and other vulnerable women, including underage runaways. During his trial in 2003, Ridgeway sat in the courtroom with a cold stare on his face. He sat there remorseless. One after another, his victim's relatives stood and spoke to him. All of them spoke about the anger and hatred they felt toward him. Some called, his, called him names, such as an animal, an evil creature, a coward, a terrorist, and a piece of garbage. And he was all those things and more. There was one man in that courtroom, though, who was different than the others. His name was Robert Rule, age 63 at that time. He was the father of Linda Rule. Linda had left home as a teenager and was one of Ridgeway's earliest victims from 1982. Robert was a Santa Claus at a mall each Christmas. He had all the characteristic features of a classic Santa Claus. Mr. Rule was also a Christian, and uh, he's been in heaven since 2015. His words to Ridgeway were very different from the others. Mr. Rule's comments caused the calloused, cold, remorseless Green River Killer to suddenly lose his composure and start to weep. I want us to see an actual video clip of that courtroom scene. I could have just shown the clip, but I chose to show this particular clip because it's part of a podcast from Todd Friel. Todd has a podcast called Wretched Radio. An unusual name, the word wretched is taken from Romans 7 verse 24 where Paul said, O wretched man that I am. I want us to see this. This is convicting. November 5th, 2003, all doubt of Ridgway's guilt was erased. He pleaded guilty to the murders of 48 women. He'd made a deal to cooperate with the prosecution to provide more information on his victims and the whereabouts of their remains. In doing so, he avoided a trial and possible death penalty. Mr. Ridgway, how do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count one for the death of Wendy Lee Caulfield? Guilty. How do you plead to the charge of aggravated murder in the first degree as charged in count two? Guilty. 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 It's like he didn't have any remorse at all for what he had done. You know, he'd killed so many people he didn't remember who they were, what they looked like. I just couldn't believe that somebody could kill all those people and not remember them. Neither could the angry relatives of his victims, who were invited to speak in court when Ridgway was sentenced to life without parole on December 18, 2003. That is sad. On virtually every level, 48 women killed by a man who didn't even remember who they are. Sad level number two, the man had absolutely no remorse. Sad level number three, the family's hearts are broken and filled with anger.
You had said your memory, when it comes to all of the women you took, was gone. Our memory is not. In your words, you said that they didn't mean anything to you, but she meant everything to us. She was a mother, she was a wife, she was a sister, and we miss her. Gary Ridgway sat there stone-faced as victims' relatives damned him and mocked him. He's an animal. I wish for him to have a long, suffering, cruel death. He's gonna go to hell and that's where he belongs. That is just sad, 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 and you can understand their pain most certainly, but even for a man like Gary Ridgway, we have to understand the gospel. But then the emotionless facade finally cracked when the father of one of his victims appeared to surprise him with a dose of human kindness. Mr. Ridgway, um... There are people here that hate you. I'm not one of them. You've, you've made it difficult to live up to what I believe, and it is what God says to do, and that's to forgive. You are forgiven, sir. is amazing and sad. Here is what makes that so sad. Any atheist who is watching that is almost furious. Why? The self-righteous atheist cannot imagine that God would forgive a sinner that is so wicked like a Gary Ridgway. Why? Because they esteem themselves as being better than that criminal. God sees it differently. God is so loving and so good, he's willing to forgive a mass murderer. And the atheist, frankly, chokes on that. What? He, no way! Somebody that bad doesn't deserve forgiveness. But here's the message of the gospel. Neither do you nor I. But guess what? He gives it anyway. And what makes it so amazing is once you understand that that has been granted to you, the wretched man or woman that you and I are, all of a sudden we have the ability to forgive as much as we have been forgiven. It's hard to imagine anyone more unlovable than Gary Ridgway. But in that courtroom, on that afternoon, he was forgiven in a positional sense. Robert Rule forgave him. To our knowledge, there was never transactional forgiveness because to our knowledge, Mr. Ridgway never asked Robert Rule to forgive him for the murder of his daughter. But that's okay. Robert Rule did what God required of him, and he forgave this serial murderer. Remember this, Christians should be the most forgiving because Christians have been the most forgiven. Christians should be the most forgiving because of all people, Christians have been the most forgiven.
Let's bow our heads. Father, thank you for what we've learned about forgiveness, about all of this, about loving one another, about loving you above all, and second, loving one another as ourselves. Uh, We all struggle in that area, and probably all of us struggle loving someone that is unlovable. So God, I pray you'll reorientate our thinking, help us to approach this person differently than we have before, help them to love, help us to love them as you love them. Help us to allow your love to go through us and onto them so that ultimately they may be convinced to have Christ and uh, if they do have Christ that they will make the kind of changes that he wants to make in them. So we commit this message to you and to our people. I hope you've been pleased and I thank you in the name of your special son Jesus. Amen.